0: Before I start, I'm going to pray. Uh, If you don't want to pray with me, uh, maybe you want to say something in your own head to God, maybe ask that he might speak to you today, Uh, or you might want to just put your head down and have a little snooze for about 20 seconds. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who speaks and who makes yourself known in your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray now that the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of our hearts and mind Uh, might be acceptable to you. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you'd like to, uh, and you have a Bible handy, keep it open to Mark chapter 2. We're going to be working through this passage a little bit uh, later on. I don't know if you know much about H.G. Wells. Uh, You probably know he wrote a few reasonably good stories. You may not know he wrote a lot of really bad ones. He had a bit of a thing for historical romance. He was also something of an amateur... Historian, and he said these words. I am a historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very centre of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all history. A much more serious and credible historian. Kenneth Scott Latourette wrote this, As the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on the planet. The great scientist Einstein was fascinated by Jesus. And in 1929, he had an interview with a United States magazine called the Saturday Evening Post, and he said these things As a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I'm a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulses in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Or Napoleon. Napoleon said this, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Uh, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and I have all founded empires. But on what did we rest the creation of our genius? On force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love. And finally, from Fidel Castro. No Christian, no great lover of Christians. He said this, I have always considered Jesus Christ to be one of the greatest revolutionaries in the history of the world. You see, whatever you think of him, you can't escape the fact that Jesus Christ has reshaped history in the way that no one else ever has. There is something distinctive about what he did that has meant that our world has never since been the same. Our values, our laws, our culture, all these things, they'd be entirely different if it wasn't for a homeless, penniless Jewish carpenter who lived in the arse end of the world. If he had never lived, then the world would never have been the same. And this is the Jesus I'm going to be talking to you about today. And along the way, you're going to be faced with three decisions. Three decisions, w- whether you like it or not. Our life is, is full of decisions. Uh, some of them we can choose not to face at all. But funnily enough, that in itself is a, is a decision. Uh, today, you're going to get three decisions posed to you. Uh, you get one decision, which will be about Jesus. Uh, there'll be one which will be about the crowds which followed him. And finally, you're not going to be able to escape the fact that you will make a decision about yourself. Those are the three decisions you'll face somewhere in the next half an hour. So we're going to talk about Jesus. And it's a common mistake, I think, when we talk about Jesus, uh, particularly in the popular domain, to focus uh, all on his powerful other person-centred teaching as a source of some sort of revolutionary change. Now, I say this as a mistake uh, for a very simple reason. Uh, Jesus' teaching in this area is not particularly unique. It's not even remarkably distinctive. I don't know uh, which of the great teachers and philosophers you've read through history, but the reality is that many of the things that Jesus teaches about the world and about people, uh, are well, there's nothing new about them. There's nothing particularly radical or surprising at times. Uh, With the exception, I have to say this, with the exception of his teaching about himself, which is utterly new and completely surprising. But you won't even understand his teaching about himself unless you understand what he did. Because it wasn't what he said that changed the world. It was what he did. And uh, for lack of a better word, we're talking about his miracles here. The things that he did which were so out of keeping with our understanding of the world, based on our modern scientific knowledge, based on just our personal experience of the way in which things happen. Can I suggest, the moment we start talking about miracles, there are some of you uh, who are going to want to switch off right away. Uh, Maybe that's because uh, you feel that they're just uh, too rational or outrageous. Maybe you feel that uh, they're just the product of early unsophisticated minds. Uh, Can I suggest today, let me challenge you something. I want to challenge you with two reasons why when we start talking about miracles, you shouldn't shouldn't switch off your brain. Okay? Here are the two reasons. The first one is this. If you decide in advance that miracles cannot occur and tell us nothing about Jesus then you have in fact prejudged the evidence itself before you have evaluated where it points you. Uh, as I said earlier, I've got two little girls, and I don't know if you spend much time around small children, but small children can go from really sweet and beautiful to really stinky really fast. Um, if I'm Sometimes in the morning it's terrible. You'll know, you pick them up, and the first thing you have to do is change the nappy. And, and then maybe about a half an hour later, there'll start to be this smell again. And you can't escape it. There is a real temptation at that point for me to say, I'm not going to even look in the nappy. There is no way that such a small child can produce so much poo (laughs) so soon. It cannot happen. And hope that somehow by avoiding that, I will resolve the problem. You can see what I'm talking about, can't you? I I prejudge the situation. I refuse to even evaluate the possible evidence based on my deep desire not to look in the nappy we're going to look at the nappy today. Okay, we're going to look at the evidence. Don't hold back. Uh, the second reason is this. The second reason is this. Uh, the testimony that we have about Jesus' miracle working, his powerful, outrageous works of power, uh, doesn't come only from his followers, from those who believed who he wants In fact, let me give you some quotes from Josephus, for example, who was a Jew deeply opposed to Christianity. He wrote in his Antiquities of the Jews, a history, about Jesus who, as he said, wrought surprising feats. In the Talmud, it says, they hanged Jesu because he practised sorcery. You see, the primary charge that Jesus' enemies brought against him was that he was somehow in league with the devil that he had powers that men ought not to have, that he was a sorcerer, that he did things which humans could not do. There was no doubt about that in his day and it wasn't because they were used to that kind of thing. The way they knew it was sorcery or something strange and supernatural was because it didn't happen every day, because it was unique and distinctive to this man who did things which other men didn't do. It seems therefore to me awfully courageous of you if you choose to start off by excluding the possibility of revolutionary supernatural power in Jesus' life in your investigation of whether or not a higher supernatural power actually exists. That seems to me to have put the horse before the cart. So we're going to look at Jesus and we're going to look at one of the miracles he does in this story from Mark chapter 2, verses 1-12 to 12, as Maren read so well beforehand. And it begins in chapter 1 with Jesus entering the town of Capernaum again after some days. Now you have to understand that Jesus is an a preacher. He stays in people's houses and wherever he goes, huge crowds gather around him. They don't gather around him at this point because they're particularly impressed with what he has to say. They gather around because there is something that he has to offer that they cannot get anywhere else. People follow him and they bring their daughters and their sons their mothers and their fathers, their brothers, their sisters, their cousins, their friends before him because Jesus has been doing outrageous things. He has been healing people. And so people travel from all over. And wouldn't you imagine this for a moment? Uh, Imagine you have a sister with cystic fibrosis. Now, this for some of you may not be something which you need to imagine. It may be very close to a circumstance in your own life. Imagine for a moment that you hear... Of this guy in dapto. <laughs> and you think dapto, man. Can anything good come out of dapto? <laughs> but you hear stories. Don't worry, if I offended you then, I'm just working my way around. <laughs> and you think, man, on dapto, if there was anyone significant, I mean, surely he would be doing stuff in Sydney, not dapto. But you hear stories of this guy in dapto and people are being healed. Now, maybe you're convinced and persuaded. Maybe you're just a little bit sceptical. Maybe you don't believe it at all, but you have this sister and man, if there's anything she needs in the world, it's to be healed. And you'll risk looking like a fool because if there's just a chance if there's just a possibility that this guy is who he says he is, then it's worth all the foolishness in the world if he can heal your sister. And so here's Jesus. Jesus from Nazareth. A tiny little town that in the Gospels they even have to point out where it is because it's like dapto. It's nowhere important. It's nowhere special. But there's this guy And he's healing people. And so people bring their friends. But the crowds are huge. If you look in verse 2, so many people gathered together. There was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking to them. So here is Jesus in a house. It's a small, flat-roofed house, made out of clay and straw. it has got some stairs up the side so you can go up and hang your undies where your neighbours can't see. And he's inside this house teaching and he's been healing and the crowds have been following him and for a while Jesus managed to escape to a quiet place but he's back in Capernaum, the crowds are here and there are some men with their friend. Their friend's a paralytic. He can't get there himself. So here they are in verse 3, coming, bringing their friend, their paralytic to him. He may not be able to walk, he may not be able to use any of his limbs, we're not sure. He's a paralytic, he cannot move so they carry him to Jesus but they can't carry him to Jesus because the crowd is so big. The queues are so long. People are piled outside the windows, outside the doors and to carry a man through a crowd like that is harder than just a small child slipping between legs. It may be in fact that these people have come to see Jesus days beforehand. But it's clear that they are at the end of their tether. They cannot wait any longer. They will not stand in a queue. And wouldn't you, if this was your friend, and you thought that here was a once-in-a-lifetime chance to win him before Jesus, and maybe, just maybe, if you didn't get him to Jesus in time, he'd miss out. And you'd live the rest of your life wondering, man, what are you... What if it was true? These guys aren't prepared to let that be a possibility. They're not prepared to miss out on what might be true if it's as exciting as it seems. Jesus just might be. And so what they do is they take their mate and they do something a little bit unorthodox. They go up the stairs and they climb onto the roof. And this this flat roof was most likely made of dirt mixed with reeds which had been packed down tight over heavy beams, it was somewhere between one and two feet thick. Most likely, it was then covered with salt to harden the surface, and maybe clay tiles were laid on top. And they lift these out of the way, and they start digging through two feet of dirt. Now, this isn't a small hole. Okay, we're not talking about a little little, little hole through that I can kind of wave a hand through and get Jesus' attention. They're talking about a hole big enough to put a man through. A man lying down on a mat. This is a serious piece of spontaneous home renovation going on here. I, I want you to change perspective. Okay? Move, move from the roof to inside the house. You're one of the lucky ones. You're standing there and there's Jesus. Or maybe you're sitting down as he teaches and you're listening to him and it's really, really exciting. Your focus is right on Jesus' words, Your world is changing as you listen to him speak about the kingdom of God and who he is. And then somehow, suddenly, you notice you're starting to get a little bit distracted. You're not sure what it is at first. But it could be the small bits of dirt that are falling on your head. (laughs) This continues for some time and every now and again you brush yourself off and then a rock bounces off your noggin. And you look up and you discover you're not the only one looking up. Most of the people are now starting to notice that the roof, which was looking so solid and impressive before, okay, even our little down lights you know, and maybe a bit of a feature wall over the side, and you look up there and, and you notice that the roof itself is no longer really functioning the way a roof is meant to, you know, kind of actually be a sealed enclosure at the top, but there is a hole and it's getting bigger and bigger. And, bigger. and I can guess by this stage Jesus has probably stopped speaking. No one's listening anymore. Okay, Someone's digging through their house. This is a big deal. Okay, and I don't know whether there's shouting uh, Mark doesn't bother to tell us but I imagine it's a somewhat unusual moment and as the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger and people see that a body is about to come through I I'm imagine the people press out a little bit towards the sides of the room you know, they don't want to get this guy dropped in them and so the four friends lower their mate through the roof and he lands on the floor in front of Jesus Jesus, this famous healer. Jesus, whom all the crowds of the local Mediterranean had gathered from all the towns and all the cities because of what they knew or had heard that he could do. Let me ask you. What would you expect Jesus to do at this point? Seriously. He's been interrupted in the middle of maybe a fairly important sermon and uh, uh, I'm a preacher. I know that preachers love to talk. We don't like being interrupted. It's a distraction from the main game. I'm thinking that Jesus is about to go, right, quick, healed, off you go, get out of the way, let's start. Let's move on. The crowds who are watching him are waiting for him to do just that, I imagine. They're waiting for him to do the unbelievable yet, yet again. To, com- to amazingly accomplish the impossible which he's made possible. And yet, when Jesus looks at this man and when he sees the faith of his friends, this trust in him, he says these outrageous words Son, your sins are forgiven. Let me say that again and just let it sit with you for a moment about what Jesus is doing and what he isn't doing. He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. You know, I talked about there being three decisions that you need to make sometime in this talk. Uh, This is the point where you get to make one of them. And here is the decision, it seems, that faces you. Uh, You can react to Jesus' words at this point uh, purely naturally I think which is to say Jesus is a jerk he is a real class act jerk a complete loser he's a religious nutter who has no connection with this world and its needs because here he is supposedly with his power to heal and looks at this guy and this guy needs healing I oh, mean think of it first century now, this is no Christopher Reeve being kept alive on millions of dollars worth of equipment. Hours and hours of physio every day. Famous, well known, and able to go and speak and attract huge crowds. You know, a, a hero in his own right. This is just a guy on a mat. He can't walk, so he can't work. He can't work, so he can't have a family. He's clearly under the judgment of God because of his legs, his condition. Clearly, in the view of the time. So he can't actually hang out with religious people either do the normal social thing, going to church, which was so important in that culture. This guy has been stripped of pretty much everything that it takes to be a man. He has almost no human dignity left. But can you imagine? That he has no wheelchair, no special systems, He gets carried to go to the toilet. This is a man who's lost everything. And if Jesus has the possibility to restore that, surely he should. So you might decide at this point that Jesus is just a jerk. And at this point, it's time to write him off and switch off. The other possibility is that maybe, just maybe there is something more going on here that we need to hear. You see, we know that Jesus actually wasn't a jerk. We know that he is someone of tremendous compassion. Even people who don't think that Jesus was the Son of God, who he claimed to be, uh, acknowledge that he was one of the finest human beings ever to walk the face of this earth. No one thinks that Jesus was a jerk. Even those who opposed him had to acknowledge that he was a great and wise teacher, a person of great character. So what is going on here? If Jesus can heal, why doesn't he? Can I suggest this? What Jesus is saying when he looks at this poor, needy, broken man, so desperate to walk again, he's saying this. And he's not just saying it to the man. He's saying it to everyone who's watching. He's saying it to me and to you who watch from a distance now. There is something you need more than healing. There is something you need more than to walk and to run. There's something you need more than to be able to fulfil a meaningful role in your society. There is something more that you need uh, than to raise a family and be able to play with your kids. There's more that you need than to be able to hold your head up high. There's something you need more than just to have the basic human dignity of being a human being who can look after themselves and take themselves to the toilet without people carrying them Jesus says you have a bigger problem my friend than your legs your biggest problem is not your health it's God God is your big problem now, before we talk about that a little bit more, let's be clear what Jesus isn't saying. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is approached by a bunch of people after a recent accident when a tower, the Tower of Siloam, fell on a bunch of innocent bystanders and they ask him, uh, what did these people do wrong? What did they do wrong that caused God to judge them in this way? Uh, because surely it must be the case. For something so terrible to happen on innocent people, there must be something specific in their lives and not ours that God is judging them for. And Jesus says this. He says, Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. You see, this man's circumstance is not a result, a particular and specific result of his particular and specific sin against God. If you ever hear someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, talking about that kind of stuff, using that kind of language, I want you to take their Bible, okay, and hopefully it's a big, heavy one, and I want you to hit them really hard across the back of their head okay, and tell them that's from me. Or maybe even tell them it's from Jesus. You see, it's not this guy's specific sin that's a problem. He's just a specific example of the brokenness of this whole world. The brokenness of a world which needs something desperately. Jesus says, this guy, in all his terrible physical need, he needs forgiveness more than any else. And he looks around the crowd and his point is made, if this guy needs forgiveness more than any else, what about, what about you? Friends, what about you? have so much right in your lives. If this guy, this first century Jew, with so much broken in his life, still needed something more than healing, what about you? What is it that you need? Can I suggest that Jesus is making the point that your biggest problem in life is not getting the right marks, getting the right girl or guy, getting the right career, getting the right lifestyle. Your biggest problem is getting right with God. You may remember uh, in May a very significant Crown prosecutor by the name of Patrick Power was convicted on charges of possession of child pornography on his hard drive. It's the that one of the points in his defence was that he was stressed by house renovations which took twice as long as expected. His computer contained videos showing men having sex with boys as young as seven which according to the agreed facts tendered in court were placed in a folder marked good. His lawyer said of him, he is not a pedophile There is no suggestion that the material was used in any form of illegal sexual misconduct. And in his defence, his barrister described him as a good man, a person with integrity. A colleague working in the same department called him a person of the utmost propriety and professionalism. I don't think it takes more than a moment to see the problem with this. Uh, sure, this guy may have been a great lawyer, a good friend, an upstanding pillar in our society. But for all of the stuff on the outside, it was pretty clear that this man was doing things which were basically wicked. They were evil. It wasn't a victimless crime, it was an enormous cost to children of his obsession. And no matter how nice things looked on the outside, the interior was clearly rotten. One of the most controversial points of the case was uh, the allegations that he received from political figures up to two days' warning. And when p- police raided his home, they found that files and even whole computer hard drives were missing. For all the nice, neat exterior, for all this guy's claims to goodness... He clearly knew that there was something going on below the surface that wasn't right. He knew it enough to start trying to cover his tracks. And the problem is that uh, anyone who knows anything about computer security could tell you this is not an easy thing. Uh, In 2003, two Massachusetts Institute of of Technology students called Simpson Garfinkel and Arby Schellert They sound like a rock band. (laughs) Bought 158 used hard drives off eBay, from computer stores, from salvage departments. Used hard drives, right? Ever thrown out a computer? They found that 74% of these contained data which could be recovered, even if the disks had been recently and completely reformatted. Among the data that they managed to recover were... Detailed personal and corporate financial records, medical records, love letters, and gigabytes worth of personal email and pornography. One drive came from a bank teller in Illinois and it contained two thousand eight hundred and sixty eight credit card numbers, in addition to bank account numbers, dates of transactions, and account balances. I don't think I'm wrong in suggesting that I think our computers can paint a fairly compelling picture of the kind of people we are. They only capture a slice of our life, but in some ways it's fairly representative. I wonder what would your computer drive yield up about you? What kind of information would we find if we could get access to what lies underneath all of the layers of passwords? Would it yield up old porn files that even your multi pass scanner can't erase. Maybe hundreds or thousands of dollars of online shopping receipts for things you didn't need but had to have. Maybe conversations via email or internet messenger applications which you never should have had. Maybe they'd show that you spend hundreds of hours playing online strategy games, because you can't be bothered with real people. You know, it's amazing how much these kinds of things, once done, they kind of stick with us. No matter how hard we try to cover our track, they're still there somewhere. We try to wipe them away and they're still there. No matter how hard we try, uh, except for something. There, There is something that can happen, and it happened to me yesterday. Um... Uh, About 18 months ago, I changed over to the dark side of the force. I I became an Apple user. Yeah, you're going to really be embarrassed you clapped us in. (laughs) Um, My my MacBook Pro, my sleek aluminium lozenge of a computer that provokes envy everywhere I go, is currently a very, very expensive paperweight. I'm in a meeting yesterday, I'm just fiddling around a little bit because I'm multitasking and we're at a boring point. <laughs> and the whole thing freezes and my drive completely melts down. I've spoken to service people, I've been on the phone to data recovery types. It's gone. It's completely gone. 80 gigabytes worth of scintillating probes. A hard drive which was a testimony to my fine taste in music. And bad aim with a camera. It's all gone. It's just wiped. It's blank. There is nothing yet left. I had to receive a new hard drive in the mail today. It's gone. It's all gone. I'm betting that Patrick Power wants my computer. I'm betting he wished it was my computer on that day that went to the computer department and it just went It just melted down. All gone, all erased, kaput, vanished, farewelled in a second. All the evidence, just gone. No chance of retrieval, no chance of conviction, nothing to answer for, all gone. The slate wiped completely clean. That'd be a great start, wouldn't it, sometimes? A fresh start. Your computer's wiped clean. It would fool the computer types, the forensic teams, maybe even your husband, your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend. But it wouldn't, for a moment, fool God. God doesn't need your hard drive. He can see past the deleted files. He can see into your heart and mine. And I think that's a problem. That's our big problem. This is why God is our problem. Because pretty much the common wisdom of pretty much all the great religions of this world is that you get back in the end what you give. A songwriter called John Dixon once wrote these lyrics. What if the river of mercy dried up? What if the future repays the past? I was listening to a track by another singer last night called Nicky Chisel and the refrain of the song is just this. I wish I could, t- I could start my life again. I wish I could start my life again. And I take it that if we're honest, pretty much all of us have felt that point, that moment of burning shame, of deep guilt for something which we just know that we have done and it is wrong and we wish we could start again. We wish the hard drive would be wiped clean. No chance of retrieval. No one would ever need to know. It's all gone in an instant. We could start again and be a different person because we know we're not who we ought to be. Can I suggest that If you don't think otherwise, then you don't know all that much about yourself and you ought to have a long chat with your friends and ask them, am I really the person I ought to be? It may be that even today you've walked out the door after a harsh or ungrateful word to your parents or you've walked past a poor man on the street and needed your money more than you do or you've watched a pirated movie because you can afford a computer and broadband but clearly paying for video rental is just too much to ask. I wish I could start my life again. Because let's be honest, if karma is all there is, if what we do just come round again, then quite frankly we are stuffed. We're pretty much stuffed. Because no matter how many times you wipe over that hard drive, someone still remembers. And Jesus called that remembering by God, he called it hell. Because one day you and I come face to face with, with a God who remembers, who sees everything. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else because he knew that God remembers. And if God is a God of justice, and I think we all are absolutely sure that that is exactly what he is, and if he is a God whose standards are higher than ours, and I think we all desperately hope that they are, then after we've lived a life of guilt and shame for what we've done and what we have been and not been that we ought to have been, then we also have fear yet to come because we come face to face with a God who remembers. Only the the third film in the Bourne series, the Bourne Ultimatum, has an advertising byline which sums up the way of the world. Remember everything. Forgive nothing. That may make an exciting film. But can I just say... It makes a hell of a life, literally. If all we have to face is the God who remembers. But this is not the truth about the God that Jesus shows us. In the prophet Jeremiah, we read of this God, I will forgive their wickedness, and will remember their sins no more. When Jesus comes face to face with the power, this is what he does. He looks at him and he sees beyond the physical difficulties, the challenges, the ill health. He sees past and he sees this guy's basic need. He sees your need and my need. He sees that we need to be made right with God and when he sees that, he wipes the slate clean. He says, son, your sins are forgiven and the hard drive is blank. Just like that. Meltdown. Flame out. Tossed away and replaced. It's gone. With one word, with one statement. Bono of U2 said in 2004 in an interview, You see, at the centre of pretty much all religions, there is this idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Or in physics, in physical laws, every action is met by an equal or opposite one. It is clear to me that karma is at the very heart of the universe. I'm absolutely sure of it. And yet along comes this idea called grace. To upend all that you reap, so you will sow, that kind of stuff. Grace defies reason and logic. Love interrupts, if you like, the consequences of your actions. Which in my case, said Bono, is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. Friends, where will you be if karma is all there is? Where do you stand with God? Or maybe there is just a little something in this forgiveness thing that you need to hear. Now Jesus gets that to say I forgive you is easy. I can say, I forgive you. Uh, yeah, but there are all sorts of problems with that. Oh, and who's to say I have the authority? Who's to say I have the right? Uh, if Angus came up to me, and him being a big buff bloke, and punched me in the nose and floored me, um, and then Merrin came down and she said to Angus, laying a consoling hand on his shoulder, don't worry, Angus, I forgive you. I'm not going to go I don't care! I don't care if Merrin forgives Angus. I'm the one who's been sinned against. It's my nose! Mirren. shut up! Sit down! I'm the one who has to forgive Angus. Jesus is claiming to have the right to forgive sins, which means basically he's claiming to be God. And we know this is the case because the people in the story recognise this. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? This man is blaspheming, which means he's claiming to be God. And so Jesus, to show that he has the power and the right, he points at this guy and he says, get up. Get up and go home. And he does. He does and something happens that all of our medical science still yet can't achieve. And even if we could, even if we could all wire back together those little fibres in his spine, he'd still never walk again. Because after a few years, the muscles in your legs are just absorbed back but Jesus just looks at him and he says, get up, take him mat and nick off. He gets up. He takes the mat. And he nicks off. He goes home because God has given him through Jesus the two things that he needs most. He's given him forgiveness and he's given him healing and all the people are amazed. You know, as the paralytic doesn't go, you know, Jesus, hold on. I'm in for the healing thing this whole forgiveness stuff, I get that it means following you and quite frankly, I'm not ready yet. You know, I like the idea of following you and I like the idea of healing and all this kind of stuff, but the cost is, you know, this whole, this whole math thing is really working for me at the moment. You know, maybe in a few years when I've had a bit of fun, you know, slid down a few hills, that kind of thing. <laughs> you know, maybe down the track. Maybe down the track, you know, yeah, then, then, yeah, that'd be, mate, I'll come back and uh, we'll sort things out we'll do business I wonder is that where you've been with God are you the sort of person who's saying you know you know uh, I, I kind of like the idea of, of forgiveness but I get that that means following Jesus and uh, you know it's, it's, it's like there's a cost and you're thinking I'm kind of like a bit like a used car you know there are good bits and there are bad bits and there's a cost and Friends, God has something you need and that you need right now. He has forgiveness. And God has something you want and that's healing. And it seems to me this is where you have the third decision. You've got to decide what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to keep going on? ignoring God and ignoring Jesus and letting a revolution happen somewhere else or is today the day when Jesus' empire built by love is going to conquer sin in your life is today the day that you're going to join the revolution and choose to follow Jesus if you think that today is a day that you ought to do something about this that today is the day you ought to do business with God i got a prayer I'm going to pray and if you think it's your prayer you can just pray it quietly after me in your head I'll pray it now and if you'd like to you can just echo it in your heart or your mind quietly why don't we all bow our heads I'll pray Dear Jesus I know you have what I need and I know that you have what I want Please forgive me and please heal me of all my brokenness. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Amen.